fear that if they try to change their own lives in really significant ways that they're won't be very many options for that. So because people feel they can't make meaningful changes, they start looking for politicians who will affirm them in their feelings, really reflect back to them the resentment that they're feeling. And I think that there are different ways that this gets done depending on which particular person, where in the economy you are, what your level of education is. There are different strategies for creating this resentment and reflecting it. Among people who don't go to college, it tends to be blaming immigrants, foreigners, minority groups for the state of the economy. Among more educated people, it tends to be blaming that first group, blaming the people who don't have a college education and vote for Republicans for the state of the economy. And that antagonism that generates produces a lot of a vitriolic culture war. But of course, it, it doesn't produce much in the way of useful economic policy that would actually meaningfully improve conditions for people. Welcome to Reviving Virtue, a podcast where we face the urgent challenges of today's world by exploring the crucial role of uncovering, together, a coherent moral narrative for our time. I'm your host, Jeffrey Anthony, on a quest to tackle liberalism's quandary and pave the way towards a more unified society. Join me on this journey as we delve into ethics, philosophy, and community building, seeking to create a common understanding that fosters human flourishing and harmony. Welcome to Reviving Virtue. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Reviving Virtue. Today, we are privileged to have with us Dr. Benjamin Studebaker, a political theorist and scholar with a keen interest in the dynamics of legitimacy in politics. Benjamin holds a PhD in politics and international studies from the University of Cambridge and has an impressive resume of articles published in journals as well as Current Affairs, New Republic, Eon, and dozens more. I am also an avid listener of the podcast he co-hosts called The Lack. It is one of the few podcasts I listen to each and every episode, and I highly recommend everyone check it out. So his latest book, The Chronic Crisis of American Democracy, The Way is Shut, published in March of this year, is an incredible exploration of the intricate landscape of our current political and economic systems. The book argues that American democracy is in crisis. I think we all know that. With the economic system subjecting Americans of nearly all income levels and backgrounds to enormous amounts of stress, it presents a critical analysis of the state of American democracy, exploring themes such as the role of oligarchs in the economy, the impact of events like war and pandemics on economic inequality, and the different experiences of workers, professionals, and employers in the current economy. Studebaker argues that the United States lacks the state capacity required to alleviate this stress and politicians increasingly find that if they promise to solve economic problems, they are likely to disappoint voters. Instead, they encourage voters to blame each other. The crisis cannot be solved. The economy cannot be set right, and democracy cannot be saved. But American democracy cannot be killed either. Americans can't imagine any compelling alternative political system. And so, American democracy continues on in a deeply unsatisfying way. Americans invent ever more elaborate coping mechanisms in a desperate bid to go on, but it becomes increasingly clear that the way is shut. The American political system was made by those who are dead, and the dead keep it. So I cannot wait to dive into the nuances of this argument. So without further ado, let's jump into this conversation. Welcome, Benjamin. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. You bet. I really enjoyed your book. Before we jump into the book, 
I was wondering if you could set the stage a bit as to how you came about to writing this book and the path that brought you to this point. Yeah. So I, I started getting into politics in the year 2000 when I was eight during the Gore-Bush election cycle. I don't know why I got obsessed with it, but I did. And ever since then, I've just been going further and further into politics and into political theory. In the 2000s, I had a kind of maybe kind of liberal view that the Iraq war was a terrible mistake. Uh, the 2008 economic crisis hit that got me really interested in the economy and the ordinary person. I think a lot of people in the 2000s got into politics through foreign policy, but 2008 got me out of that to some degree and into more economic analysis. I did my undergrad degree at the University of Warwick, where I wrote a dissertation about whether democracy could bring about economic justice. Looking at Bush, the re-election of Bush, and the terrible things that happened in Iraq, I became a little bit more skeptical of our system than I think people from earlier generations might have been. I had this sense that if democracy really worked, Bush shouldn't have been re-elected. And yet he was. So there was something not quite right about our system. And then if democracy is an infallible system, then it should have worked in Iraq and it didn't work in Iraq. So there are some issues with this system. It's not straightforwardly a perfect system that can just be imposed in a particular context and work. Sometimes it works better. Sometimes it doesn't work as well. It has advantages and disadvantages like any other system. And in treating it like any other system, that allowed for a more honest analysis of it, I think. So as I moved on to University of Chicago, I, for my master's, I started thinking about, is this system stable? Maybe the problem isn't just that there is an issue of economic justice here. Maybe also the rising economic inequality undermines or destabilizes the system in some way. And in my master's thesis, I made a lot of comparisons between you know, the United States and uh, older democracies that had succumbed to internal division. I mm. called it the return of depression politics. And I imagined that maybe in some way we were going back to the 30s. I wrote this thing in 2014 about, oh, we're going to have 30s politics again. So then I got to Cambridge for the PhD. And at Cambridge, my supervisor, David Runciman, asked me a really great question near the beginning of my project that just completely changed the way I think. And that was, okay, you know, in all these ways, you might say that the contemporary crisis is like the 30s, but what about the ways in which it's not like the 30s? What's different or distinctive about now? And the things I really alighted upon are, for one, our system is much, much better now than it was in the 30s at coming up with economic policies that can smooth things out and keep the system operating during a crisis. In the 30s, people didn't really know how the system worked. And mm -hmm. a lot of the economic policies that we tried to get out of the 30s were very experimental. Now there's a whole tested playbook that goes many pages deep, much deeper than it did in the 30s of different kinds of strategies, monetary, fiscal, and so on that can be tried. Second, Nazi Germany is gone. The Soviet Union is gone. Those models are discredited. And if you call what somebody's proposing communism or fascism, that's the quickest way possible to get lots of people to oppose it. What other alternative system is there that could be used to potentially challenge our system or pressure our system to do better? There isn't really one. If you look at the other systems that are operating around the globe, what would be the leading alternative political systems out there? 
the list is not a very happy list. It includes China, Vladimir Putin's Russia, the theocracy in Iran. None of these regimes are particularly compelling for Americans. Nobody's going, oh, yeah, we ought to adopt that instead of what we have. So I think that the economic situation has produced a lot of stress. And in that way, there's some analogy to the 30s in that there's a lot more economic stress now than there used to be. Or say, the 19th century, there's a lot more economic stress in, in a way that there was plausibly in the 1800s. Not in so far as people are starving or that there's very high unemployment, but there's other kinds of stress. That I think there's some analogy with. But when we start going with what are people going to do about that, what are people's options in response, it's a completely different world with completely mm. different options. And so this book really became an attempt to take seriously at the same time, the degree to which people are under stress and the degree to which the economy is creating misery and unhappiness in the country and the durability of the system in the sense that it's inevitable and that there is no alternative to it. And to completely take both of those points fully seriously at once and see what comes out of that. That's fantastic. That's probably why this book really stood out to me, because I think a lot of people will look at just the economic system, or maybe someone will just look at the you know democracy and liberalism, argue over those things, but they never really look at both of them and take both of them seriously and see how they interweave with each other and inform each other. And so before I go any further there, since this is your book, I want to go on to this next question, which delves into the first chapter of your book. In chapter one, you title the book Unsolvable Problem. You lay out the scene of falling wages, massive rise of inequality, the shocking numbers, really, and the idea of increased capital mobility through the neoliberalization of the markets. This is really critical. This is definitely not the same as the 1930s now, how fast capital can move around the system. And this reduces the scope of reforms that can potentially be implemented by democratic institutions, as this capital flight is a real threat. This empowers oligarchs because they know this. They know that they can move their capital at a flip of a switch, really, outside of whatever society it is currently situated if they decide to change the rules. You talk about how only a few years ago it was possible in the United States to talk about these effects of the economy on democracy and culture. And mainstream liberal economists used to talk about this all the time. I remember this. <laughs> but things shifted at 2016. Both party establishments, you had Trump and Sanders, were criticizing the economy. And they were gaining massive amounts of support for, these, for this criticism. And obviously, Trump won, right? So as each advanced this critique of American economy, in response, the American elite closed ranks. And I really loved the way you phrase that. And it really, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it did. They closed ranks and they acknowledged the seriousness of economic problems and the role they played in fueling resentment and gave aid and comfort to, this, to the populist movement. So uh, it was necessary for the elites to find a way to explain populism without engaging with the economic context in which it arose. So can you explore a little bit more about that in this first chapter and what you were getting at with this? Yeah, I think immediately after 2008, there was a willingness to explore economic possibilities to frame the crisis in terms of the economy. But after 2016 happened, there was a need to say that this wasn't about the economy, that this is purely about cultural issues, that the supporters of Donald Trump are purely motivated by hatred, bigotry, other kinds of, of cultural flaws. And that means you don't have to engage with, with why they're unhappy, because they're unhappy for fundamentally morally bad reasons that it would be wrong to engage with or wrong to try to resolve in any meaningful way. And that instead, the thing to do is to suppress this 
resentment and this all the forms of resentment that we're seeing. I think that uh, you mentioned the, the point about capital mobility, and I do think that's very central to this book. One of the things that I do think is really different about now is how easily very rich people can move their money around the world. And the fact that they can move their money around the world very easily creates an incentive for countries to lower their tax rates to attract this money, to keep wages down so that companies will choose to situate in these societies. And those policies over time damage the public services, which runs down the living standards of public sector workers, but also hurts the quality of the services, which creates more instability internally within the society. And then because wages are stagnating, there is a difficulty in providing sustainable sources of economic growth. You know, if you need Americans to consume more, but you can't pay them more in wages, you have to come up with other ways to give Americans money so that they can buy more things. And these other ways of giving Americans money are often unstable and involve debt. And debt can tie Americans to particular jobs or roles that they don't really want to be in. It limits their freedom to change their lives when things aren't going well. And that means that if they're in a role that doesn't work for them. If their life is stressful, it's very hard for them to change it quickly. They don't have the resources to change it. And there's a fear that if they try to change anything, it will only get worse. So that applies not just to, to politics, to fear about trying to make a different political system, but it also applies in people's personal lives. There's a fear that if they try to change their own lives in really significant ways that they're won't be very many options for that. So because people feel they can't make meaningful changes, they start looking for politicians who will affirm them in their feelings, really reflect back to them the resentment that they're feeling. And I think that there are different ways that this gets done depending on which particular person, where in the economy you are, what your level of education is. There are different strategies for creating this resentment and reflecting it. Among people who don't go to college, it tends to be blaming immigrants, foreigners, minority groups for the state of the economy. Among more educated people, it tends to be blaming that first group, blaming the people who don't have a college education and vote for Republicans for the state of the economy. And that antagonism that generates produces a lot of a vitriolic culture war. But of course, it, it doesn't produce much in the way of useful economic policy that would actually meaningfully improve conditions for people. And I think really to improve those conditions, we would have to tackle the incentive structure that pushes down the tax rates and pushes down the wages. And that means we would have to tackle the international tax and trade system. But that's something that's very difficult to do, in part because if the United States wants to keep trading with other countries, it needs to work with those other countries to change the system. Those other countries have political systems of their own that don't necessarily produce governments that want to change the system. These other countries don't trust the United States as a diplomatic partner in changing the system, in part because every four or eight years, the president of the United States changes, and often the new president rips up old treaties or agreements that the previous president has made. Mm -hmm. So there's a lack of trust there. And if you try to do this unilaterally, if you throw up trade barriers, you throw up protectionism, you refuse to trade with countries that don't have minimum tax rates or minimum standards of labor laws or wages, if you do that, then that's going to disrupt a lot of supply chains and push up the costs of a lot of goods. And that 
is inflationary and can cause governments to lose elections. So there's a bit of a straitjacket for governments. If they don't comply with these incentives, it's very hard to win re-election. But if they do comply with these incentives, then over time, things will continue to get more stressful. There will be more resentment. And therefore, to win elections, they'll have to find ways to reflect and cater to that resentment. And in the course of doing that, they will exacerbate and intensify it. So now this is not part of my prepared questions I had for you, but I think it's really important to understand for our audience that what you're saying here is that because of this global system, which is generally understood as neoliberalization or neoliberalism, let's say a president of the United States here, he makes these promises. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. If you vote for me, I'll do these things. But then when he gets into power, and let's say he even controls all branches of the government, which we had for a little bit, (laughs) not too long ago, he can't really do the things he promised because this will upset the global economic order. And if you upset the global economic order, then things will happen. Like you mentioned, you can have uh, uh, the supply chain disrupted, and then we have an increase in inflation, and then we have problems with price controls and all these things. And what happens then is that the president doesn't do what he says he's going to do. And so in a way, we have lost our way of managing our own, our needs locally. So it's our local needs are torn away from us from this globalization. And as you mentioned, because of this, in order to keep the masses distracted, the you know, the the working class and the professionals, we'll get into your schema in a little bit on this, they create animosities between us so that we don't all get together and try to overthrow this system, I believe. Is that kind of an accurate uh, way I just summarized that? Yeah, I think as you have more people who lose faith in the political system's ability to deliver for them, you get lower voter turnout, you get lower rates of voter participation. So if you're a political strategist and you're trying to boost your vote count, you need to find a way to reactivate these people who are deactivated, who are Mm -hmm. not who have become cynical or who have become are in a kind of political despair and don't really think that their time or effort ought to be spent voting, donating, following the news. That group of people that you can reactivate by making wild promises or by creating fear of what will happen if they don't participate, that group is increasingly larger in the United States than the swing voter population, the set of people who might switch between parties depending on what they're being offered. As we've become very intensely oppositional, the swing voter part has shrunk. And this Mm. set of fringe voters might vote if they're upset, if they're scared, that portion has increased. So political strategists are increasingly just focused on how they can get the fringe voters show up. The person who doesn't really like Biden, who doesn't really like Trump, who doesn't really like Republicans or Democrats very much, how do you terrify that person into voting? How do you terrify Mm. that person into making a donation? Wow. So we're still on chapter one here. And I want to mention this because the first chapter of this book is so rich. <laughs> I read it twice, to be honest with you, because I just I, I learned so much from it. So I want to ask another question here. This next question resolves around the schema of class that you lay out. And you do this by explaining that the alternate person has to find a way to navigate this increasingly precarious world. But there is no easy path in the 21st century. And most of life's paths available to people are likely to end up in deep resentment. So... Let's explore how three different classes experience this new kind of economy. You have the workers, the professionals, and the employers. And what really stood out to me and allowed me to have this aha moment was your further separation of the professional class into what you call the rump professional, which would be up here, and the fallen professionals. 
This schema you sketch out here in chapter one is crucial to understanding the rest of your book. Can you tell our listeners why viewing our sociality as workers, professionals, and employers, and why the play between the rump professionals and the fallen professionals is so crucial to understanding the confusion and animosities we see flourishing in our current time? Yeah. So if you think back to the 50s, the thing to do if you wanted a good, stable job in the 50s was to go work in a factory, right? You go work in a factory, you're in a union, and now you've got a good, stable job. In the 70s and 80s, we started to reduce the number of people who were employed in the factories. And we said, you can't be sure of a good, stable job if you try to work for a factory now. So the thing to do is go to college. If you go to college, you get an education, then you'll be in one of these white collar professional jobs, and then you'll be good. And the people who don't go to college, they'll be left behind. So we need to get everybody into college and increase the number of people who go to college as a percentage of the total. Of course, what happens when everybody gets a university degree is that the university degree becomes much less valuable. And so what we've seen over time is that the university degrees have all become increasingly all. Right now, it's probably most, but soon it will be all oversaturated to the point where people who have university degrees don't have nearly the same kind of leverage they used to have when they bargain with companies. And so as this has happened, the set of people who get university degrees who actually get the full benefit of a university degree in the sense in which that would have been understood in the 70s, you know, good six-figure job, you can afford to buy a house, you can afford to have children, you can afford to pursue these different life projects. That set of people has contracted as a percentage of the total number of people who go to college. So I make this distinction between the rump professional who has gotten those benefits and is still having the kind of life that people imagine they're going to have when they decide to go to college when they're 18. And the fallen professional who has a degree but doesn't have all the benefits that used to come along with having a degree. And I think that this fallen professional is in a very frustrating situation because if the fallen professional just acknowledges that they've been proletarianized, that they've been made into a worker, then the achievement of going to college, the achievement of getting the degree, all of this is made into a waste of time in a sense. It's all made into a kind of embarrassing series of mistakes. And so there's a need to hold on to this distinction between people who went to college and people who didn't, even if they make the same amount of money and they live in the same kind of housing and their living standards are more or less the same, the person who goes to college needs to hold on to the idea that they made themselves better in some way by going to college, that there's a distinction between them and the person who didn't. And this becomes very useful to people who want to create an antagonism between college-educated professionals and the traditional working-class person who doesn't go to college. And the way this is done is you get the traditional working-class person to use these heuristics for explaining the economic situation, mm -hmm. to use conspiracy theories, to blame racial outgroups, to take a, a socially conservative positions that are out of step with the positions that most college-educated people have. If you can get those people to have those kinds of views, then the people who go to college will go, well, I, I don't want to be associated with those people. And I've mm -hmm. got to be you know, better than those people. Those people are the problem because they think all of these things that I don't think. And because I went to college, I, I, I know better than those people. And what you want to get those fallen professionals to do is to keep aspiring to be rump professionals, to keep following the rump professionals, taking their social and cultural cues from the rump professionals. And mm -hmm. if they are doing that, then if you're a very wealthy person, you can hire these rump professionals to disseminate perspectives that are friendly to your interests, and you can get many of the fallen professionals to sign up to that stuff. 
instead of working with the traditional working class. And I think this is increasingly how American politics works. And I think you can find early examples of this as early as, say, McGovern in 1972, where mm. the McGovern campaign was very progressive on, say, the Vietnam War or on social issues, but was much less connected to the labor movement than, mm -hmm. say, Lyndon Johnson was mm -hmm. or Hubert Humphrey and alienated a lot of the labor union guys. So in 72, when the labor unions did not really back McGovern to the degree in which they had previously backed Democratic candidates, the progressive movement's attitude is that this just shows that the traditional worker isn't really a revolutionary subject, isn't really a progressive. And therefore, we have to leave this person behind and find some way to govern without that person. Mm -hmm. And of course, the consequence of that is you're never going to win large majorities of the electorate doing that. You're never going to have an electoral strategy that allows you to build the kind of majority you would need to do really radical economic policies like higher rates of tax or Medicare for all or tuition-free college for that matter. None of this kind of stuff is going to happen if you're scraping by with small majorities in the House and in the Senate. And increasingly, what we're finding is that the left now is not even running campaigns that are capable of winning a majority of Democratic seats. If you look inside the Democratic Party at the Bernie Sanders left, the Bernie Sanders left really only runs competitive campaigns in heavily gerrymandered, very blue districts inside major cities. And because of this, it, it doesn't really have any chance of winning a majority of the districts that the Democratic Party currently controls. And if it can't establish a majority within the Democratic Party, it certainly can't establish a majority in the country, the kind of majority that would allow it to pass the big structural changes that it's called for in recent years. And the left media doesn't really want to acknowledge the degree to which this strategy doesn't really work or doesn't make sense, in part because the left media relies very much on selling news to fallen professionals who mm -hmm. want to feel that sense of superiority to the worker, yep. who want to imagine that when the worker doesn't go with them, it's the worker that's at fault and not them that is out of alignment. And that results in a movement that is is minoritarian and isn't gone anywhere. And so but, I, I got to jump in here for a second because go for it. This is what this was my big aha moment. What you just described. I felt I have fallen prey to this, which is I work at the I look at a working class and I'm like, well, how could you do that? You're an idiot, you know, and like you're the problem. It's not me, you know, and then I'm, I'm consuming the news and the websites and the Twitter feeds and the podcasts and we're of the rump professionals that are producing content for me. For, the, for my type of person, when in reality, if we're going to make any big change in this country and actually like take control back, I got to be friends with the worker guy over there, you know, and, and not just guy over there. Like we're on the same team, but we're taught that through our consumption of media in various channels, that that person over there who's a worker who doesn't have an education like I have even though he makes the same amount of money, maybe even more, he's a racist or he's ignorant or, you know, he's anti all these cultural issues. When in reality, the immiseration that we all are feeling, this anxiety <laughs> that is in all of our lives is driven because of this super elite class, the oligarchs, right? Yeah. And they, we could never get these massive majorities that are required to, uh, to regain control and make our system better. And 
when you think about the Bernie campaign, because you you write at the in the last chapter of your book, and we're skipping ahead a, a little bit, like quite a bit, but uh, you mentioned that you were a big you. I don't know if you if you volunteered for the Bernie campaign, but you were a big supporter of the campaign. How did that experience affect you? And did this allow you to come to this conception that you just described to us here? Yeah. So in 2016, I really got behind Bernie. I wrote a lot of uh, pieces promoting the campaign. Some of my pieces did pretty well. I think I had one that did like 800,000 hits on my blog. That one wow. went on Huffington Post. And then from there, I ended up going on, on to current affairs and doing podcasts and doing other things to try to help in whatever ways I could. Because I really believe that uh, stuff like Medicare for All is just really important. Getting people certain basic economic rights to health care, rights to housing, rights to energy. These are just basic things that you really ought to be able to take care of, given the level of development that we have achieved as a society. And I went, well, you know, the Bernie campaign, it hasn't necessarily got answers to every problem. It wasn't really clear to me exactly what Bernie was planning to do about the international tax and trade system. He wanted to withdraw from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but I, it wasn't really clear to me how far all of that was going to go. Nevertheless, I went, this is a guy who's committed to getting health care for all the people in the country, and that's important. And I want to try to give that a chance. So I got behind it. And I got behind it in part because you know, I'm going, there isn't really anything else that we can do. It's not like there's some other political system that we are going to embrace. This is what we have. So mm. I have to find some way of making what it is that, that I want fit into this. Mm-hmm. So I got behind it really hard. And what, what disappointed me is that I saw in the university settings in 2016 that most of the people who had pitched themselves to me as Rawlsian liberals who are interested in giving priority to the worst off and helping the most marginalized people in society, a lot of those people didn't get behind Bernie Sanders. A lot of them endorsed Hillary Clinton in the primary, and they framed the idea of, of Medicare for all as a utopian thing. And then as we moved toward the 2020 campaign, what I, I started to notice is that more and more of the organizations orbiting the Bernie campaign were made up of professionals who cared more about the social and cultural issues that are tied to having a college degree than they did about the economic issues that got me interested in the campaign in the first place. So as we moved toward 2020, I got more and more critical of the way in which we were organizing things. And I did podcasts and I increasingly wrote pieces about campaign strategy rather than about substantive issues. And I got more and more frustrated as it became clearer and clearer to me that there weren't enough people who had this kind of view who had college degrees, the people who could really get heard, the people who can get pieces published, people who can get their voice heard are people with degrees. And among people with degrees, I was very much in the minority in terms of what I thought the campaign ought to be doing. It became clear that working class people were not very happy with the way the campaign was working because ultimately, if you look at the Iowa caucuses, Bernie won far fewer rural districts, far fewer districts where the college educated percentage is low than in 2016. Same goes for New Hampshire. He won every district there in 2016, but lost several of those districts in 2020. And then if you look at the overall state map, Bernie got California and Nevada, but he gave up an enormous number of rural red states that he had won in, 20, in the 2016 primaries. 
And if you looked at college towns, that's where he had made improvements. And urban districts, that's where he made improvements, but not not rurally. And also, you know, a lot of the things that the professionals claimed that their strategy would do, like, for instance, increase his vote share among African-Americans, did not transpire. He nonetheless lost South Carolina by an enormous majority. Mm-hmm. It didn't improve that situation because a lot of the ordinary working class African-American voters were not convinced by the messaging. The messaging was out of touch with them. Right. So coming out of all of that, I went, if there isn't really a strategy here that can work, what does this mean? What else is on the menu? And this book became a search for whether there is any anything that anybody can do. Is there a way to continue to be involved in American politics that makes sense given how disinterested in winning majorities the Bernie Sanders left appears to be? And one of the things I talk about in the book is the degree to which the Bernie Sanders left has developed a kind of codependent dynamic with the Democratic Party where the Bernie Sanders left creates this sense that there's internal criticism within the party, that the party is ideologically and politically diverse. But every time there's an election, all of these guys line up and say that the Republican is a fascist authoritarian and you've got to vote for the Democrat. You need to be terrified because if you don't vote for the Democrat, the system is about to collapse. And that kind of language is, I think, really unhelpful because I don't think it's true that the other side is authoritarian. And I think it's just as silly as when, and we remember this from the Obama administration, when the Republicans said Obamunism and Obama's a communist and all of this stuff. It's a mirror image of that stuff. I don't think it it really holds water. People will say that Donald Trump is a wannabe authoritarian, and that may well be true, but an individual leader wanting to be a dictator is very different from a political system that allows an authoritarian person to seize power. And if you look at, say, what was the military's reaction to Donald Trump's attempt to dispute the result? Or what were, was the judiciary's reaction? Right. Uniformly, all of the people who are necessary for someone like a Donald Trump to stage a coup, all of those people lined up against the Trump administration, including the justices he appointed, including yep. the generals who were on his, in his meetings, in his national security meetings. So if you don't have any of those people, you can't actually overthrow the government. And I think there was a lot of dishonesty among people on the left and people associated with the Democratic Party and their portrayal of all of that. It was a, definitely an attempt to utilize this to drive voter turnout rather than an honest engagement with what it really meant. Right. It's also a convenient narrative to get people to vote for you. And then you don't really have to deliver on anything that will make anything meaningful for those people's lives. Like we save democracy from an authoritarian. So we're just going to keep things as usual. And that's not good. So getting back to your book, that was, a. by the way, this is an incredible conversation we're having so far. And I'm actually now I'm looking at my notes. And since we've been jumping around a bit, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with the notes here and see uh, if it makes sense. I keep jumping in here because everything you're saying to me, it's just like I say, everyone needs to read, read your book because I think there's a lot of people out there who listen to me. They, they, they have just very similar feelings that I have, which is this anxiety and why are things just always reproducing in this manner that things just suck? <laughs> you know, you know, we got, can use a lot of big words and academic words, but you know, things suck right now and they keep sucking over and over and over again. And you laid out. So uh, in chapter three, you delve into this concept of the chronic legitimacy crisis in American democracy as proposed an alternative model of four levels of legitimacy. You have perfect, full, minimal, and liminal. You also discuss how Americans, despite their frustrations, would rather get excited about doomed reforms than support alternatives to democracy. 
Could you elaborate on this model of legitimacy and explain why it's crucial to understand the current state of an American democracy? Yeah. So legitimacy is, of course, to do with whether or not people accept or reject the form of government. And because it's to do with that, people often conceive of it in a binary way where people either view the government as legitimate, they accept it, they do what the government tells them to do, or they view it as illegitimate, they don't accept it, and they riot and protest and try to destroy the government. In making it four levels rather than this binary question, I try to complicate it a little bit to show what I think is going on. So with perfect legitimacy, you can imagine a society where everybody agrees with everything the government does all the time, and nothing the government does upsets anybody ever completely unrealistic, never happens. And if it did happen, you would be a little bit unnerved by that. That would be of weird. We don't really want the government to have perfect legitimacy. With full legitimacy, people often disagree with specific things the government does. They might not like the person who wins this or that election, but they believe that the procedures are sound. They like the electoral law. They like the separation of powers. They like the distribution of powers among the branches of government. They like the distribution of powers between the state and between the federal government. They're not trying to change fundamentally the way in which we do democracy. They just don't like this law or don't like this uh, this particular president or candidate. They still follow the law. They still go along with decisions, even when they don't like them. They're good losers, right? That's mm-hmm. full legitimacy. And you okay. can imagine full legitimacy is something that we maybe have moved close to at certain points. There is always some level of of frustration with our procedures and wishing that our procedures were fairer. But there are periods where most people seem reasonably happy with the procedures, and we don't talk about them as much. You might think about, say, the 50s or the 80s and 90s as examples of this. Then you've got minimal legitimacy. Now, with minimal legitimacy, there's agreement that we should have democracy but there isn't agreement on what that means. So now all of those procedural debates are open, but there is still a consensus that the system ought to be a democratic system. It shouldn't be authoritarian or fascist or communist. And then with liminal legitimacy, there actually is some alternative system that some people seriously want, and they're actively trying to bring it about through an uprising, a coup, a color revolution, something, a general strike, something very hard and concrete and real. So what I propose in this chapter is that because there are no viable alternatives to democracy in most people's opinion, that this makes it impossible for them to go all the way down to liminal. We never get into this liminal space where it's unclear whether the regime is going to survive. Instead, we get stuck at minimal legitimacy with no ability to push up toward full. So most of the time, legitimacy is between full and liminal, and sometimes it's closer to full and sometimes it's closer to liminal, excuse me, to minimal. Yeah. <laughs> but in our society, it's almost always pretty close to minimal. It never goes toward full and it never drops to liminal. So you have a right. set of people, you know, I think really everybody's in this set, who find the situation uncomfortable. You have people who go, ah, we need to push toward full. And we have people who go, oh, I hate this. I wish it would just go away. Right. But because people don't actually have another system that they're willing to put their lives on the line for, it can't go away. And because we're not able to solve the underlying economic problems that would cause people to believe in the system, if we could solve those problems, people would think our system works, we can't move toward full. And so this traps us in this minimal space. And in this minimal space, because people don't agree on what democracy means, and people are throwing out different ideas for how to fix it or make it work, 
we keep thinking that everybody else is authoritarian because everybody else has a different understanding of democracy from us. So mm. I think a really obvious example of this is the voter laws around the 2020 campaign. So because of the pandemic in 2020, the Democrats said, if you don't allow people to vote from home, a lot of people aren't going to want to show up because those people are going to be worried about getting COVID. So we need to have some changes to the rules so that those people can vote. Those changes lead to delayed vote counts. It takes much longer to count the votes, and that causes the election day to not look the way that it normally looks. It takes much longer for the votes to come in, and the people whose votes come in by mail tend to be people who are more worried about COVID, so they are more likely to be Democratic voters. The consequence of this is that because the votes don't come in the way that they normally come in, this leads to anxiety among Trump supporters that the electoral system has been rigged in some way, that these reforms have actually corrupted the system and that fraud is occurring, right? So they then start proposing to roll back those reforms and eliminate them and force people to show up in person. Now, when the Democrats see those reforms proposed by the state legislatures after 2020, they go, this is voter suppression. This is an attempt to suppress the vote of our voters, and it's racially motivated. So you get multiple levels of accusation of authoritarianism here. To the mm -hmm. Republicans, the attempt to allow people to vote from home is an attempt to steal the election. To yep. the Democrats, the attempt to stop people from voting from home is an attempt to suppress the vote and steal the election. There's no longer a set of rules about voting that both parties regard as neutral democratic rules. It's now the case that whatever set of rules you propose, they are an authoritarian power grab from the point of view of some significant chunk of the population. At the same time, none of these people think that they're being authoritarian. None of these people are imagining in their own minds that what they're doing is an authoritarian power grab. With you know, very, very, very few exceptions in the far corners of the internet, all of these people think that they're making the system fair. And this right. is replicated, I think, all over our system. There's a set of reforms that people you know, who are Democrats or are associated with the left, there's a set of reforms that people who are Republicans are associated with the right like. It can be about giving the president marginally more power. People think, oh, if you're trying to give the president more power, that must be authoritarian. But there are, of course, democratic constitutions in other societies that give the president more power than the president would have here. In France, when they threw out the fourth Republican move to the fifth, they switched to a form of democracy where the president was more powerful. But most people still regard France as having a democracy. Some people don't. Some people think the Fifth Republic was a coup and that France has an authoritarian regime, but that's a relatively marginal segment of the population. Certainly, they don't get a whole lot of attention from English language media. So when you get into this kind of crisis, just everything that you might try to do to make the system feel democratic will look like it's authoritarianism to somebody else. And part of this is because people just really value very different things from democracy. Some people think that democracy is great because it's this neutral, credible rule of law system that will give the same kinds of decisions no matter who's in power. Some people like democracy because it's dynamic. The will of the people allows the law to change if people want it to change. Those two conceptions of democracy don't really fit. If you think that democracy, you'll get the same decisions no matter who's in charge, and democracy, you can vote in people who will change everything very quickly, you know, those two conceptualizations don't fit at all. But democracy sometimes benefits from both of those aspects. Sometimes democracy is a more secure place for rich people to invest their money because they're not worried that if the dictator dies, there will be a civil conflict and the new leader will confiscate all of the wealth.
Conversely, in authoritarian regimes, it's often thought that if there's a crisis and the government gets the crisis wrong, it will struggle to change course because there's no electoral process to vote the government out and replace it with another government that has new ideas. So sometimes we like the dynamism, changing government to change policy, and sometimes we like the credibility and, and the sense that things will go on more or less the same no matter who wins. And it varies dramatically which one we want in different situations. Similarly, if we don't like authoritarianism, sometimes we're worried about an individual who exercises tyrannical authority, who can intervene in our lives in all kinds of different ways. And other times we're worried about an impersonal system of incentives that compels everybody in society to behave a particular way, where mm -hmm. nobody's really free to make any decisions because everybody has to do whatever makes money or everybody has to do whatever a, a, you know, a bureaucratic logic, some kind of Kafkaesque bureaucratic logic dictates. If you think about a CEO, there are CEOs of private companies who are tyrants, and then there are CEOs of public companies who espouse a kind of corporatist logic that isn't really reducible to them or what they value or what they care about, but is determined by the need to provide shareholder value. And those can both be bad, but they're bad in very different ways. And some people think the real concern here is that someone like Donald Trump might become a tyrant. And other people think the issue is that there's some kind of totalitarian schema in which certain leaders of tech companies or certain very wealthy people are empowered by a corporate structure that overdetermines all aspects of American life. And depending on yeah. which one of those things worries you, you're going to want to reform the democracy in a dramatically different direction. You know, giving particular people power is a way to check an impersonal bureaucracy. And creating mm -hmm. an impersonal bureaucracy is a great way to check a very powerful human being. Mm -hmm. So the reason I started this podcast is because when you just described I just love the description you gave. So you have the Trump people on the right who are saying, oh my God, you're giving all these people the rights to vote during COVID to mail in, and that's authoritarian, and you're stealing the election. And then, then so COVID's over, and then the people on the right or who are Trumpers or whatever, it doesn't have to be Trumpers, but just people on the right are like, hey, we want to put the laws back to the way they were. And then the left's like, oh my God, this is, you're taking voters' rights away. This is, a, you're stealing the rights of the people, and you're destroying democracy, you're an authoritarian. What's interesting is that both people on both sides, their lives suck right now. And the reason they're so anxious is because of the economic system, as you mentioned in the very beginning of this conversation. And I started this podcast because I feel like we should be able to talk to each other in a way, create narratives, right? It's kind of moral narratives, create a moral horizon that we can draw upon so that we can come into a situation like so COVID hits completely un predicted. I know you, you can say that there is a chance in statistics, say XYZ, but that came out of nowhere, really. And this created a situation during an election. And we're like, okay, well, we, we can't expect people to go out who are susceptible to this virus. And so we're going to make it easier for them to vote. Is there a way? Is there a way to create the narrative, to create a cultural, what's the word I'm looking for, but just a way to weave this into our culture so that the other side doesn't see it as a threat and it sees it more as as we're helping each other, right? We're here together. And I'm wondering if this is actually the way this is playing out is intentional, as you mentioned, with the rump professionals versus the fallen professionals and the fallen professionals versus the workers. And we're just always arguing with each other when really we're in the same space that we all should be working towards together. Uh, now, this is unprepared, so I'm, I know I have a tendency to, to get on a little, little tangent there, but what do you think of what I just said there? Is there? Do you think there is possibility to weave in some narratives that can come back into our culture to bring us into some sense of coherence instead of this kind of crazy incoherence that we seem to be in right now? 
Yeah. So I'm trying in this book to get us to focus on this economic stuff, because I think it is something that cuts across a lot of the things that are used to get us to fight each other. And I think in drawing attention to that and to the seriousness of those problems, we might be able to get ourselves to, to focus on some of the problems we have in common instead of the problems that we have at other people's expense. It's difficult, however, to solve the economic problems because the structure of our system is not very well equipped to solve them. So I think contemplating these problems tends to make people feel very negative and sad and unhappy. And one of the things I, I talk about in this book is it used to be that people had hopes that the person they elected might make their lives better. Now people are motivated to vote by fear because they're worried that if the other side wins, something terrible will happen. Fear and hope are cousins of each other because fear is mm -hmm. always based on, on the idea that the other side's hope has value or is valid, mm -hmm. that the other side is right to hope because they might win. But if you can get past both of the hopes and therefore both of the fears, then I think there's a possibility of moving into a kind of despair. And that despair isn't a very pleasant headspace to be in, but if it can cause you to think creatively about the problem itself rather than about all this other stuff, we might over time manage to come up with some new ways of approaching it that are about working together to solve the problem we all have instead of looking to dunk on each other and to say, no, I'm better than you because I went to college or no, I'm better than you because I'm not cringe or whichever yeah. it might be. So, okay. Benjamin, to get back to your book, you critique the way liberty and equality are taught in schools and universities, suggesting that these teachings often limit our understanding of these concepts. How do you think our educational system could better teach these concepts to foster a more nuanced understanding of political theory? Yeah. So one of the things that goes wrong is that you can't really teach the political concepts that explain why we might have this system or want this system in school very, very easily. Because if you say, well, America is valuable because uh, it defends freedom or it defends equality or it's a system where you can be represented, people then will want you to define those terms, to conceptualize them. And any given way that you might try to define those terms is liable to put some people off. So if you say, well, this is the reason why we have this country, if you use anything more than the vaguest possible language, it can kick off a whole fight among parents. And for this reason, social studies at the high school level is very boring. It has to be boring because if it stops being boring, then you get the kind of fights that we've started getting recently as people have tried to add to what is taught at the high school level. We have this lowest common denominator, high school civics education, where you just learn mechanically how a bill becomes a law and what are the branches of the government and so on. Because if we did more than that, then there would be too much acrimony. And as a result, it's very boring and nobody really learns anything. So when you come to college, now you finally think, okay, now I'm going to get to dig into why do we have this system? What does it do? But a lot of the undergrad classes that focus on this stuff offer to students very curated versions of the debates about these terms, curated versions that push students toward particular views. And at this point in the academic literature, lots of academics have had more interesting and more sophisticated conversations about those terms. But on the basis that, well, undergraduate students aren't ready for all of that anyway, we don't give them all of that. And we give them, we tend to give them 
much less than we really should. And we often give them a kind of binary choice between two different ways of thinking about liberty or two different ways of thinking about equality. Liberty is positive or negative. Equality is of opportunity or outcome. And representation is delegate or trustee. And these ways of framing are very, very limited in scope. And it comes in part because people don't believe in the capacity of undergraduate students to think. So they don't really think that undergraduate students can handle more than this. And it also comes from the fact that Increasingly, the universities are dominated by outside money, by grant money. They're not getting a lot of funding from the state anymore. And as they become dominated by outside money, they become more like the organizations that have traditionally competed with universities, like think tanks and foundations, which are directly funded by rich people and often directly espouse their perspectives. So as this has happened, for instance, on liberty, students learn Isaiah Berlin, and Isaiah Berlin gives you this binary distinction, and then he heavily loads the binary distinction in favor of negative liberty. So positive liberty is freedom to do stuff, and negative liberty is freedom from interference. And Mm -hmm. of course, if you try to give people positive liberty to do stuff for Berlin, that means that you're going to impose on them what you think they should do. So you're going to impose some essence on them that they have to realize. You're going to say, well, of course, as a you ought to be able to be a good Christian, or you ought to be able to be a good Marxist. You're going to end up with some kind of heavily authoritarian system if you emphasize too much the positive side, and therefore it's important to emphasize the negative side. Mm -hmm. The thing is, there are lots of ways of conceptualizing liberty that involve giving people help in doing the things that they believe are valuable without imposing a single unified view about what counts as a valuable life on them. You can give people lots of different options about what they might do, It's possible to give people a lot of meaningful choices about how to live that that don't impose one singular vision. And one way of getting this across is Quentin Skinner's no dependence view. So for Skinner, one alternative is to think about freeing people from depending on other people. If you depend on somebody else, it's not the case that they necessarily tell you what to do all the time, but you have an awareness that your income depends on on them. Your ability to own a house, make a living, have children depends on them liking what you do and being happy with you. And the fact that you know this on some level, even if they never interfere in your work, even if they personally reassure you they're never going to mess with you, kind of sits on your shoulder over your head. You can imagine if if you didn't have a job and you lived with your parents, right? The fact that you rely on your parents for money would sit on your shoulder a little bit and weigh you down. You would be aware at any time that if you upset your parents too much, you could all of a sudden be in trouble. They have this pull on you because they have the money. And in the same way, a lot of people are worried about their bosses or their HR departments having this pull on them because they rely on their company or their university or their institution to do all right. Sometimes people feel this way about their spouse in their marriage, that if they upset their spouse, then their day will go off the rails. So they have to be real careful about what they say. They have to walk on eggshells lest they create a problem. So if you give people access to certain basic goods like healthcare or housing, this reduces their dependence on other people. It's not about making them live in a particular way or upholding a very specific set of values necessarily. It can just be about giving them freedom in the sense that they don't rely so much on particular people or particular institutions to get by. That gets really boxed out 
by Isaiah Berlin. Isaiah Berlin tends to conflate that with mm -hmm. this self-realization angle that he pushes. And in his mm -hmm. discussion of positive liberty, he uses both of these interchangeably and invokes both of these ideas in the same discussion in a way that completely muddies what's going on and would totally confuse or befuddle anybody who hasn't yep. been helped along a little bit. Yep. Similar kind of thing with equality, where for a long time, the discussion was about opportunity or welfare. And of course, welfare, that seems very, very difficult. How do you make everybody equally happy? So you can't make everybody equally happy. What does happiness even mean? How do you define it? So it's got to be opportunity, which, which limits to some degree the scope of what you can be doing. And opportunity operates from the premise that it's opportunity in the market. It's an opportunity to try to get a job, an opportunity to try to find a spouse. There's no making sure that you do end up with anything. There's no making it easier in a general sense for people to get these things. You could have a situation where everybody's at the bottom of a bottomless pit. Everybody has the same opportunity to climb out of the pit because everybody's just as stuck in the bottomless pit. They all have the yeah. same opportunity, right? Right. More recently, the tendency has been to try to move it to equality versus equity. Mm -hmm. And the people who did this had positive intentions. They frame equality as equality of resources, right? So if you see that picture that's gone around the internet of the kids trying to watch the baseball game, right? Mm -hmm. Under equality, they all get one box to help them watch the baseball game. And that enables some of them to watch the baseball game, but not all of them, because some of them are too short to benefit from the box. The alternative they say, is equity. And with equity, everybody gets enough boxes to be able to watch the game, no matter how tall or short they are, right? So equity gives you equality of welfare. Everybody ends up able to watch the game. And equality gives you equality of resources. Everybody gets one box. Now, of course, that excludes all the other ways in which people have thought about equality. Equality has been defined at different points in the literature as equality of capabilities, equality of resources, equality of opportunities, equality of welfare. All of these different things have gone under the name equality, but now on this new binary, equality just means equality of resources and equity means equality of welfare. Mm -hmm. Now they did this in part to try to get young people to have a more radical attitude because if you reject equality of resources and you say equality of welfare is what we need, then that's gonna move you away from say equality of opportunity, which hasn't even been discussed in this binary. It's been completely cut out. The difficulty is once you say everybody ends up at the same spot, there's this question about, are we talking about individuals or are we talking about groups? So right. what has subtly happened is that since equity was introduced, the wealthy foundations and grant giving institutions have increasingly pitched equity as being about racial groups rather than mm -hmm. individuals. So instead of making sure every individual gets the same set of stuff, set of uh, able to see the game, gets the same level of happiness, level of well-being, it becomes, let's make sure every racial group, that no matter what racial group you're born into, you have the same chance of having the same level of wealth or income. Mm -hmm. And that becomes compatible with having, say, a society where only a very small number of people attain any serious level of wealth, and very, very few people do very well. But if there's no difference among racial groups in how everybody does, then that's perfectly all right. You can have a society where almost everybody works for peanuts, but the set of people who don't work for peanuts is racially diverse, then you don't think anything of that. That's equity in the racial group sense. And what that has done is it's taken this term that was introduced in a bid to radicalize the concept of equality 
by turning it into individual equity. It's taken that and completely ruined it to the point where it now just means making sure that some of the billionaires are black and some of the billionaires are women and some of the billionaires are LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. And it has no content beyond that. And it doesn't promise anything to the ordinary person, really, and gives the ordinary person very limited reasons to care. This reminds me of a, something I read in an article where someone's like, you know, we want to have a, a society where everyone can thrive and flourish for what they want to do. I don't want a society that keeps the system as it is. But instead of Goldman Sachs having just all white middle aged men, they have a couple black women in there. That's I still don't want Goldman Sachs there. That's the problem. Just having a different racial people sitting in the boardroom doesn't make the world better. And that argument, though, is very contentious. Like that, a comment like that, like I just said it, I might be getting in trouble with some people because I actually agree with that comment that we shouldn't be setting up a system so that we can we preserve the economic order. All we do is mix up who is at the top of that economic order and for racial differences or identity groups or whatever they may be. We should have a system where that doesn't matter. What matters is if we have the ability to flourish and be who we are. Now, is what I'm saying completely crazy? Or is this kind of like what you were just getting at there, Benjamin? No, no I think it yeah. makes sense. And I think yeah. the fact that people have to go, is this crazy, shows how <laughs> Im impositional this discourse is. If you say, I don't like racial group equity because racial group equity leaves the oligarch class entirely intact and does yeah. nothing meaningfully to address the system of tax and trade that keeps people's wages down, keeps people in debt, doesn't do anything about any of that. Yeah. Now the move is to go, well, if you oppose this or you criticize this framing, it must be because you have some kind of cultural attitude that's not okay. And there's right. a suspicion that is cast upon you merely yep. because you've criticized it. The real reason that the suspicion is cast upon you is because you are criticizing it from the point of view of actually redistributing wealth and income in an economic sense, actually creating economic programs that would empower people to live in a freer array of ways. And all of that has to be boxed out. And so these terms have to be framed in such a way that boxes out any kind of move in that direction. At this point, if you start talking about welfare policy, people want to talk about just cash transfers. They don't want to talk about ensuring people get access to housing or health care. They want all welfare policies to be completely compatible with the market. So there's this enormous emphasis these days on universal basic income right. and very little emphasis on fixing the healthcare sector or right. fixing the education sector, because it's much easier for people to imagine just shuffling some money along to people to allow them to keep buying things through a UBI that doesn't indebt anybody than it is for them to imagine actually changing these economic sectors so that they function for people. That's is what I'm all about. I post this stuff, a lot of it on Facebook and private. This is not public, but I, I say that what you just said is what I argue. It, it can give people all this money they want, or you can give them down payment assistance. That down payment assistance is not going to fix the housing problem. What's going to fix the housing problem is changing the actual structure of the housing market so that private for-profit home builders are not the ones who are deciding in private how much they're going to build. I listened to a podcast, this is two years ago, where they were talking about the 2008 crisis and the person that was talking about it was a home, was like the president of the Home Builders Associations somewhere here in Arizona. And they were saying the problem of 2008 is we built too many homes. That was a problem. He goes, now we have X amount of housing starts. And this is great because it's 60% below the peak of the housing starts of 2008. Now, when I was listening to this, I'm like, this guy 
is he's saying things are great because he's creating the conditions that create the homeless situation here in Southern Arizona. And he's, I'm not going to build more homes. Are you kidding me? We had too many homes before. This is why it took seven years for us to get back to our returns on, on invested capital. That's the problem. That The problem is that if you give people a down payment assistance, that's not helping the housing situation. Uh, yeah, we have a system where if the cost of a house goes down substantially and houses get more affordable, loads of people will go bust and lose their money, lose their yeah. jobs, lose their investments, and the society will substantially crumble. We don't allow yeah. houses to fall in value very much for very long because otherwise there will be all this chaos, even though the fact that we keep housing prices so high prevents yeah. very large numbers of people from buying homes, from starting families, from doing the things that they want to do. We would rather defend this housing market that where we've turned the house into an investment tool for the professional or for the small business owner, instead of viewing it as something functional. Well, we're coming up on time. In fact, we're past our time. In respect to your time, I'm going to get to our, our last question. Now, the last chapter of your book, I think, is really great because you say, what if you're wrong? Because you lay out all these things that, well, we just talked about and more. And then you're like, what if I'm completely wrong? Why did you write this chapter? And what are you trying to get across in this last chapter of your book? Yeah. So I think a lot of people will read this book and they'll think it's very negative and it's very depressing. It's a dark kind of book. And I felt bad. I felt that some of these people, I ought to make an effort. A lot of people that I talked to about the book while I was writing it go, well, in the last chapter, you're going to tell us how it can be better, right? And I go, well, but that, that kind of hope narrative is the same kind of hope narrative that has caused us to underestimate these problems so many times and to make so many mistakes in our strategy for dealing with them. I'm really reluctant to do that. At the same time, I did want to give people some tools to think about if they do want to continue to be involved in politics and they want to try to do stuff. I myself have a very hard time letting go of politics. I've been obsessed with it since I was a little kid for reasons I don't even understand fully. So I can't just walk away from politics. There's a chapter where I talk about kind of other things people get involved with, other things they do. I call them the four Fs, these other zones people get invested in. And if you can't get invested in one of those zones, you find yourself addicted to politics in a permanent and irresolvable way. This book is very difficult to live with if that's, if that's you. And, and it is kind of me. So I wanted to kind of throw out my best ideas for what we could do and then be very self-critical about them so that they don't perform this function that the final chapter usually performs in books of promising people a bunch of false hope that isn't really based on anything. There are a lot of wonderful books where somebody outlines a problem in great detail and then tosses off some lazy final chapter where they try to make everybody feel better about it. And the effect of that is to diminish all the hard work they've done prior to that in the book. You know, all of those other chapters have made people think seriously about this problem. Then they make it out like it can be easily solved and there are already people who have all the answers out there somewhere else. And when you read that chapter, it doesn't invite you to get involved in thinking about it. And what I really hope to do in this book is to make people despair about this system so that they'll start to think about what we could do better. In part because if people aren't really challenging their political system, if they're not really critiquing it in a serious, organized way, it's very difficult to get democratic political systems to make meaningful concessions to people if people aren't organized in such a way to make the politicians pay a price for not acceding to their demands, if they aren't organized in a way to make oligarchs pay a price for not acceding to their demands. And I think a lot of us have just been feeling like things aren't going well, but imagining that somebody out there knows what they're doing. And eventually, somehow this thing will kick along. 
And I don't think that's going to happen. At the same time, there's another chunk of people who just love for the whole thing to collapse. There's so many Americans who they say they're scared of it, but on some level, they want it to happen. The fall of the society, the return to a pre-industrial condition, people buying all these guns and filling up their suburban basements with guns, kind of on some level, hoping that the thing will collapse so that something Mm -hmm. new can occur. Yeah. And similarly, this is a kind of, of inverse wishful thinking. The fear narrative is a kind of inverted hope narrative of that maybe things could change, that maybe things could be other than what they are. And the thing that I think really ought to make us look at ourselves in horror is the possibility that we could be living in something like The Sims. If you've ever played The Sims, you know, every generation of Sims you make, the house is the same house and all the stuff is the same stuff and nothing really changes. And the changes that do happen are superficial. And we're just going in a loop here. And if we don't change what we're doing fundamentally, we're going to all get old and die. And this society isn't going to be better than it currently is. And it won't collapse either. It's just going to keep on walking along, stumbling along. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think if people really took that seriously, if they really took seriously the idea that we might not have an America that's any better than we found it when we die, and yet it might still be here, that might propel them to do something new to think in new ways about all of this. And that's, I'm hoping that in my future work is some of that, that this book propels me to think in new ways and write other books that mm-hmm. develop other ideas. Um, but I, I, I'd love for other people to be doing this with me. I feel like I'm, I've been doing it alone the last few years. Yeah, well, you're not been doing it alone because you know, when I read your book, I was like, this is a book that I... I could have written and if I'd taken your path into getting a PhD and all those, it's very well written. And I'm curious though, like when you, are there any actions? I don't think this is in your book, but you can prove me wrong. Things that people could do because I, many times I think we're talking about the homeless situation. People, they're good people at heart. They want to make the world better, but they're actually making it worse by doing things like the, I, I'm going to keep picking on it because it's on my mind, the down payment assistance programs. Those things make the world worse because it just reproduces the social systems, which are creating uh, the homelessness and all the other bad things that are happening that are associated with high home prices. What is something that maybe people could do to shock them out of this habit that they're in, that this cycle that they're in? Do you have any ideas? Well, one thing I I would love to see is an attempt to kind of bring back the labor movement. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think that this is a cure-all because a lot of the factories are no longer in the country. And when they are in the country, they're heavily automated. So the ability of worker, American workers to go on strike at big factories and immediately destroy an enormous amount of wealth for rich people overnight just by shutting a factory down for a few hours even, that's gone away. So the labor unions don't have the leverage that they used to have. And of course, Mm -hmm. when they did have more of that leverage in the 70s, it wasn't enough leverage. They still tended to lose politically even with that leverage. But I think a first step would be to start to rebuild that stuff. And that would mean having more professionals who go to places where people work, talk to people who work, work alongside them. You know, One thing that you could do is go and get a job working at one of these places and talk to the people. Or, you know, at the very least, go around to a downtown in your local town, go into all the businesses and and ask people who work, what are conditions like? How are things going? Get people together, get people sharing information about their working conditions locally. And this is the thing, a lot of it, people are trying to do it all over the internet and there's not a whole lot of interaction. And when you do get people involved, they're all over the country. So they're not concentrated in any way. If you organize the people on on a street, 
They might work at a dozen different bars and restaurants and coffee shops and little retail joints. If you get those people to just share information about conditions on the street, you can get a critical mass of them that can allow them to work together a little bit to try to improve conditions in their neighborhood. When we focus on unionizing, we're often focused on unionizing these big national chains. We're not Mm -hmm. focusing on concentrating power in specific geographic regions. And Mm -hmm. insofar as we work on geographic regions, it tends to be these heavily gerrymandered blue districts that are not representative of the country. And when you do win in those districts, it creates a false impression that you're making progress, which I think can be Mm -hmm. counterproductive and can lead to people who are experienced in campaigns that won, but won with a strategy that's not scalable, pitching themselves as experts. So I think especially people who live in red states, in states and areas that are not traditionally thought of as places where you can organize people, to actually go into their the ordinary little towns in this country and get people in the towns talking to each other about what they make, sharing information about conditions. And then if people are sharing information and they've got a little bit of a community together, now you can start to create sources of news for people that are yes. local, that are embedded in their conditions, that can help them think about what's going on around them in a way that's more effective. So much of what's gone wrong yeah. is that as these unions have collapsed, there's nobody around who provides news to people in a way that is really embedded in their conditions. And even the people Mm -hmm. who frame themselves as doing this tend to be professionals living in cities who, when push comes to shove, their audience is more professional than working class. And so their content is always going to favor the issues that the fallen professionals care about when those issues conflict with the issues of the workers in the towns. If you actually spend time just hanging around those workers in the towns, figuring out what they care about, interacting with them, talking to them, and bringing them together insofar as you can, that I think will do a lot more good than some of the big national organizing lately that people have been doing, and certainly more good than these very unusual districts that that people get involved in because they think they can get a quick win. They think they can get a quick win for somebody in Seattle or Chicago or New York, and they just ignore the rest of the country completely. And then when those people are hearing about labor politics, the face for that is some person from New York City or from San Francisco that doesn't resonate with them, doesn't know how to talk to them on any level. Daniel, that's that's really amazing advice. And you, you mentioned it, building narratives local that are contingent and local and speak to them for their time. I think that's really what we need to do is start building more of these narratives across the country regionally, and then hopefully weaving them together and maybe into a grand narrative in which we can start articulating our voices in a way that can make meaningful change in our lives. So I want to thank you again, Benjamin, for joining us today on Reviving Virtue and for sharing your profound insights into the current state of American democracy. Your book, The Chronic Crisis of American Democracy, The Way is Shut, is a must read for anyone seeking to understand the complexities of our economic system. So thank you again, Benjamin. Hopefully we'll have you on for your next book. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. You bet. All right. Okay, I want to thank everyone for making it to the end of another episode of Reviving Virtue. I want to mention right away that when I closed out that last episode with Benjamin, I said Benjamin's book is a must read for anyone seeking to understand the complexities of our economic system. I really should have said the complexities of the political and cultural system, including the economic context. Benjamin's book is much more than an exploration of the economic conditions we are living in today. I really hope you enjoyed this discussion with Benjamin Studebaker as I did 
This has been my most enjoyable one thus far. As I record more of these, I'm, I'm starting to feel like I'm finding myself in some solid rock as I grapple to find my voice and confidence in this process. So thank you again to my early supporters for trusting in me to bring you engaging conversations across the topics we have th covered thus far. Be sure to check out Benjamin's book, The Chronic Crisis of American Democracy, The Way is Shut. This is also a good time to announce that I have a new bookshop.org landing page for this podcast, Reviving Virtue. I will be able to put all the books that I feature here, also that are mentioned during the podcast, and you can find them all there in the bookshop.org slash shop slash reviving virtue, no spaces. Buying a book from this store directly supports the authors, independent booksellers, and a very small percentage supports this podcast. It's a win-win-win. I'm also trying to promote the YouTube, YouTube portion of this podcast because every single one of these I produce a video for. So if you can go over to YouTube, search for Reviving Virtue, and subscribe. Even if you don't consume this podcast on YouTube, it would really help if you could subscribe. I'm also working on a whole new series of guests. Uh, I'm about to go on a very short vacation, and I have uh, six books with me. I'm going to be reading all of them at the same time. And I'm going to reach out to the, the authors I think will be most suited for this format. And they will be coming out towards the end of July and early August and into September. So until then, let's each do our part to nurture our societal garden, fostering growth of shared symbols, meanings, virtues, and moral narratives that resonate with our time and our aspirations. If you would like the transcript of this episode, those are available on my Patreon page for the $3 a month Moral Explorer tier. And if you upgrade to the $5 a month Ethical Pioneer tier, you can listen to the podcast early and receive a private RSS feed that you can listen to through any of your podcasting apps. I usually finish these a few days ahead of time, so please go over there. All this helps a lot, believe me. Uh, producing these episodes takes a lot of time, and I'm hoping you're enjoying them. So until then, I really appreciate your support. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Be well.